And uh, let's take our Bibles, turn to John chapter 14 this morning. John chapter 14. After I graduated from college, um, I moved to Kansas City, Missouri. And I'd never lived there before. I'd never been there except for a few short visits. And uh, so it was a new place, a new experience for me. I was there about a month, and then Shandy and I got married. And uh, so we spent the first four years of our marriage living in Kansas City, Missouri. We had our first two children there, and it was a great time. I worked uh, for a sales company, and so, you know, with salesmen, they're always trying to do things to generate sales. And so one day they said, hey, we've got a bunch of tickets to the Kansas City Chiefs game, and we want you to come and bring some of your customers with you, see if we can sell some more stuff. And so I thought, well, this will be fun. So I went to the Chiefs game, and I, I still remember I was just wearing this uh, blue striped polo shirt that I wore from time to time, and it, I thought it was a nice shirt, nothing wrong with it. And I show up at the game, and I realized very quickly I was out of place. Everybody else there was wearing red because they were Chiefs fans, and they had their red jerseys on, red shirts on. And it wasn't that I wasn't trying to cheer for the Chiefs, I just <laughs> To be honest, didn't really care about the Chiefs. <laughs> I, it wasn't my team, one that excited about them. But boy, I took a lot of flack for not having the right colored shirt on that day. People yelling at me in the stands, what's your problem, traitor? They didn't know me, but I just wasn't in a red shirt, so I was in big trouble. It's like they thought I was on the wrong team. Have you ever felt like that? You showed up for something and you realized, wow, I... I must be doing something wrong here. I'm on the wrong team. I signed up for the wrong side. Maybe you're out cheering for your team and you realize, wait a minute, everybody else seems to be cheering for the other team. You ever bought tickets to a game and you ended up in the wrong section? You know, I remember going to football games and stuff. There was a certain side, you know, you got the home side of the stadium and the visitor side of the stadium or the home side of bleachers, visitor side. You want to make sure you sat with your team because it wasn't very comfortable to sit with the other team. And you say, why are you telling this story about football and teams? I think it has a lot to fit with what Jesus says here in the beginning of John chapter 14. As I already mentioned earlier, Jesus says here, let not your heart be troubled. Now, have you ever thought about that? Why do you think he said that? Like right here, in this particular place. So think with me, if you were here a couple weeks ago, if you weren't, You'll just have to listen and you'll catch up with us this morning. But think with me, what was going on in John chapter 13? Jesus had told his disciples some things that were kind of bad news, right? He, he, he said, one of you is going to betray me. He said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. He had just finished telling his disciples, I'm going to die. Now think about it. These disciples, they had been called out of their livelihood, fishermen, tax collectors, a doctor. You had all these various people from various backgrounds, and they're following Jesus, and to follow Jesus meant to do things that were different than what everybody else was doing, right? They were following this man that wasn't exactly popular, at least not with the political and religious leadership of the day. They're maybe taking a little bit of flack for following Jesus. People are looking at them. People are saying bad things about them. People are wondering, why are they following this man? But they believed in Jesus, and they were following Jesus, 
And then Jesus gives them all this bad news. One thing right after another. I'm going to die. One of you is going to betray me. Peter, you are going to deny me three times. And remember, he told Peter that right after Peter said, Lord, I'll follow you all the way to the death. And he said, no, you won't, Peter. Before the cock, before that rooster crows three times, you will de- or before it crows, you will deny me three times. And I almost imagine these disciples sitting there and they look up and they look at each other and they might have had that thought, wait a minute, did we join the wrong team? Everybody's against us and now our leader himself has said he's going to die and he said that one of us is going to betray him and he said that Peter, who is one of the leaders of the group, that Peter is going to deny him three times. And I think this fits a lot with where we're at in our Christian life maybe today. And I think this has probably been true all throughout history. That there are at least moments in time as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, where you kind of look up from what you're doing. Maybe you walk out of church on a Sunday morning, or you maybe walk into church on a Sunday morning. You look around and you say, where is everybody? Or you walk out and you're going through your week and you go back to work on Monday and you hear all the stories of what everybody else did over the weekend. You think, well, what did I do? Did I join the wrong team? Am I doing something that makes sense? Or is this just all made up anyway? Is this really true? I mean, I think if I'm honest, I'll tell you, I have those thoughts sometimes. And I think all of us do from time to time. We get discouraged. We struggle. We wonder, what's going on? If God's really God, then why is all this happening? Look with me there, John 14. Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Verse 4 says, And whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. One of the wonderful things about serving Jesus Christ and about having your sins forgiven, and this is what the Bible teaches When your sins are forgiven by Jesus Christ, you have been brought into a family. You've been brought into God's family. You may have an earthly family. You may not. But if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if your sins have been forgiven, you're part of God's family. And Jesus tells them, He says, don't let your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. And He tells them about some benefits of being part of the family of God. I don't know about you this morning, but I am glad I'm a part of the family of God. I'm glad I have been saved and my sins have been forgiven. I'm glad that I know that I'm on my way to heaven. I'm glad that Jesus has a plan for my life and the Holy Spirit is working in and through me to accomplish the purpose that God has. I'm thankful for that. And Jesus gives His disciples some encouragement in these verses. 
He's talking about our Heavenly Father and our family. Our Father and our family. Jesus was troubled in His spirit, it says back in John 13, verse 21. And He tells His disciples, don't be troubled yourselves. In John 16, Jesus said, in this world ye will have trouble. Let's just take a, a little poll all right? We're about to have an election, so we're used to polls going on. How many of us, how many of you would say, Pastor, I've had some trouble this week? Anybody? Okay. The ones who haven't had trouble, you need to go be their friend, I guess. They've got it all figured out. No, maybe you didn't have trouble this week, this past week, but you might have it this next week. I understand. There's trouble. And Jesus is speaking about being part of His family. Notice He says in verse 2, In my Father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Why could these disciples not be troubled? Why can we not be troubled? Because He says, if you're part of God's family, He said, I'm preparing a place for you. Think about it. If if I called you up and said, hey, why don't you come over to my house for lunch? Or we had a few people over for breakfast yesterday. Hey, come on over for the to the house for breakfast. We're going to just enjoy some time together. What do you expect is probably going on at my house after I invite you? There's probably some preparations going on, right? Let me tell you, there's a lot of preparations going on at our house. And there's a secret we've learned. If we invite people over for breakfast, the house is relatively clean. Because during the night, not very much destruction happens around our house. But once the daytime goes on, it's anybody's guess, right? There's seven of us that live at our house. And I probably contribute to the mess as much as anybody else. And so when we have it first thing in the morning, we can prepare, 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 and then go to sleep and we wake up and the house is clean. <laughs> wow, it looks nice. We just pull the food out and get it warmed up or cooked and it's ready to go. We had a great time yesterday with some folks over at our house. I don't know, we didn't count up. We probably had 20-some people over yesterday for breakfast. Now, you know I didn't do all the work, did I? I have a wife who is wonderful, and she prepares far beyond what I prepare for. But do you know why she prepares so much? Because she cares about the people that are coming over. And she wants to be a blessing to the people that are coming over. She wants there to be more than enough food. She wants the house to be cleaner than it normally is on a day-to-day -day basis. Because she cares about the people that are coming. And Jesus says, here in John chapter 14... He says, I am going to prepare a place for you. He's just told them that he was going to die. And they think it's over. It's done. Maybe we're on the wrong team. Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you. That's what Jesus is doing right now. He's preparing a place for you. And if it's Jesus, He's God. He has all power, all knowledge, all ability, all the resources at His disposal. 
And He is the one preparing the place. I know it's going to be a wonderful place. And you know, the Scripture does describe for us in some amount of detail what, has, what heaven will be like. But the Bible also says the half has not been told. John, when he's writing the book of Revelation, says there's, there's not enough pages in the world to contain all that could be written about it. Heaven's going to be a wonderful place. And God is preparing a place in His house for you and for me. And He says right here, if it were not so, I would have told you. Jesus always spoke the truth. He says, I'm going to prepare a place, and if I go and prepare a place, I will come again. See, because Jesus is preparing a place, that's part of the guarantee that He's going to come back to get us. Listen, we don't clean up our house and prepare it for nothing. When we get ready and we make the food and and we clean up the house, we're going to have somebody over. We've even had some times where the person we invited couldn't come. We're like, well, who else can we invite? We don't want to let all this preparation go to waste. Right? We're going to get somebody in there to enjoy that food and spend the time in the house because we've put all the work into preparing it. Now, God's not like us. He's different than us and all those things. But I want you to picture this with me a little bit this morning. You don't have to be troubled because even though there's lots of trouble in this world that would cause us trouble and concern and frustration and disappointment, There's a place that's being prepared for us. That's one reason why, you know, we can go through a week, and and a week might be hard, but we're looking forward to what comes on the weekend. Hey, we're going to spend some time with our family, or we're going to go enjoy this, and I look forward to coming to church on Sunday and being with other believers. Why? Because we've got something special that's ahead. So it helps the troubles of this week to not be so bad because I know what's ahead. And folks, church is just a little taste, but it's not anywhere in the full taste of what heaven is going to be like. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Think about that with me for a minute. Getting to be with Jesus. If Jesus is there, do you think there's going to be any trouble? No trouble when Jesus is there. If Jesus is going to be there, is there going to be any more sadness or tears? No, the Bible says He's going to wipe away all tears. Jesus is the great physician. And the Bible says when we go to heaven, we get a glorified body. Is there going to be any more sickness there? No. Let not your heart be troubled. Yes, this world is full of trouble. You almost can't go through a day and not have some kind of trouble. Even if it's not for you personally, you see it going on in someone else's life. And and I don't know about you, but my heart was troubled this week just thinking about the struggle and the fighting and the disagreements and the people that are angry with each other in our nation, in our city. That troubles me. But I don't have to let that trouble control me. 
overcome me, frustrate me, get me down, get me discouraged, make me want to quit, make me want to give up. Why? Because Jesus is preparing a place for me. Do you know that He's preparing a place for you? Are you going to go and be there with Him? For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. See, there's this picture that Jesus gives us of heaven, that it's being a home. He's going to prepare a place for us. And He says, if I go and prepare, then I'm going to come again. Now, if you look back in John 14, He continues on with this conversation. Because now Thomas steps in and asks a question. Now Thomas, later on, we know him as doubting Thomas. Why? Because when Jesus appeared after His resurrection, Thomas wasn't there the first time. And he said to the other disciples, well, I'm not going to believe unless I take my finger and I put it in the nail holes of His hand and I take my hand and I place it in His side. And you go, ooh, that's a pretty strong statement, Thomas. But before we get down on Thomas, we're just like him. God, I'm not going to believe you unless you step in and do some kind of miracle. Listen, he's already told us what he's going to do. He's already given us his word. He's given us the Bible from beginning to end to reveal himself to us. And yet there are many people that will walk around and say, yeah, but I'm not going to believe in God unless. We're no better than Thomas. In fact, I would say we're worse in one sense because we have the completed scriptures and Thomas didn't. Thomas didn't have as much to go on as we have to go on today. So thankful that God's given us his word. But Thomas asks a question here in verse number 5. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Thomas says, I don't know where to go. I don't know where you're headed. How can I know the way? How? Now again, let's relate this to where we live, right? Because it's one thing to read about Thomas and his doubt. It's quite another thing to put the finger on ourselves and say, wait a minute. We're the same way. I go to church. I give in the offering. I serve at the church. I help in various things. But it doesn't really seem to make a difference. What am I doing here anyway? What's the purpose? What's life about? I try to get my kids to come and do this, but they don't seem to care. What's the point? That's kind of where Thomas is at, isn't it? Lord, we know not whither thou goest. And how can, how can we know the way? If we don't know where you're going, then how are we going to find the way? Think about that. If you don't know God's purpose, how can you find the way, right? God, what are you doing? I feel like I'm lost out here. I don't know where to turn. I, I can't tell what you're doing, God. Your, your ways are too big for me. I can't understand it. And we just feel lost. I think the disciples felt like they might be on the wrong team. I think some of the disciples might have felt like they, they were just lost. 
But what does Jesus say in verse 6? Aren't you thankful that God always has answers for us? We may not always like his answers, but he always has answers, and he gives us answers in his word. Jesus says in verse 6, I am the way. Thomas, you don't know which way to go? Thomas, I'm the way. Thomas, you don't know what truth is? You don't know what's right and what's wrong? Thomas, I am the truth. But Lord, I look around and I can't tell what's right and what's not right. I mean, people are arguing. I, I don't know what to believe on the news anymore. I don't know what to believe. People tell me one thing and then they do something else. There's, everybody seems to have an agenda. Everybody seems to be out for themselves. Nobody seems to care about anybody else. We just lived in a mess up world. Jesus said, I am the truth. When you wonder what truth is, remember, Jesus is the truth. When you're not sure what the right decision is and your friends are asking you, so what do you think about what's going on in Washington? I, I don't know all the answers about that, but here I can show you what the truth really is. I'm a human being. I, I can't figure out every single thing that's going on in the world around us. I don't know all the what happened, he said, and she said, and what he did, and what she did. I don't know. But God knows. And I know God. He's the truth. And then Jesus says, He's the life. He's the life. It doesn't feel like there's much purpose out here to living anymore. What are we doing? I, a lot of people living for a lot of stuff. We could worship our sports team. We can worship our friends. We can worship our family. We can worship just having a good time. Jesus says, no, if you want real life, I am the life. I am the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then to cap that off, he says at the end of verse 6, No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He's very definite. He's not using, let's have a little English lesson. He's not using indefinite articles here. He's using definite articles. He says, I am the way. Or some of you might say, I'm the way. That little word's important. Because some people would rather substitute a different word in there and say, well, he's a way. I mean, there's lots of ways. Well, if you believe that, you are in direct contradiction to Jesus Christ. And I don't mean that rudely or unkindly. That's just the truth. You can't believe that there are many ways and believe in Jesus because Jesus doesn't agree with you. A lot of people say, well, I agree with Jesus, but I agree with all these other things too. Okay, but let me just let you know, Jesus doesn't agree with you. Jesus says very clearly here in this verse, He is the way. That means He's the only way. He says He's the truth. It means there's, there's no truth apart from who God is and what God does in this world and what God has said in His Word. I am the way, I am the truth, and He says, I am the life. There are a lot of false examples of what life is or what people think life is. There are a lot of people living a life and they're going to get to the end of it and they'll think, well, I did the best I could and they'll find out it was empty. 
It was worthless. I wasted my time. My life's over now and I have nothing to show for it. Because everything that I invested my time and my energy and my money into, it's all gone. And I can't take any of it with me. You can't take your money with you when you die. You can't take your house with you when you die. You can't take all the beautiful things that you own with you when you die. You, you can't take all the parties and the fun and, and the things that you did. Those don't come with you when you die. And so some people, they say, well, that's why I just live it up right here because there's nothing else when we die. Wait a minute. Rewind. What did Jesus say at the beginning of the chapter? I go to prepare a place for you. There is something after this life. And as a Christian, it's a place that God has prepared specially for me. The sad thing is the opposite is true. God has also prepared a place for those who are not followers of Him. He's prepared a place. He prepared it originally for Satan and all those demons. But those who refuse God, follow their own way, will spend eternity in hell. Jesus is saying here, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is a way forward. It is possible to know what is right. I was scrolling through Facebook the other day, and they had added this new thing on there where somebody had posted a news story, and then Facebook underneath it posted this little thing said, Fact check. And you click there, and now Facebook's going to tell me if it's really right or not. Oh, thank you, Facebook. I trust so much in what you're going to tell me now. What are they going to tell me? Well, now they're going to tell me what their perspective is on what's right or wrong. But folks, it's sad. We live in a world people trust Facebook more than they trust their friend. Well, this is Facebook where I get my news. It's how I keep up with people. Listen, I use it too. It's just a tool. But folks, it's not the Bible. It's not God's Word. It's not where truth comes from. Well, I saw it on the news, so it must be true. No. <laughs> no. The news is just one person speaking about what's going on. And they're giving you their spin. They're giving you their perspective. And they're probably only showing you the part of the story that supports what they're trying to tell you. And you don't know everything else that's going on. It's the world we live in. Now, I watch the news too. I try to keep up with stuff. Because it's the best we have to at least hear what's going on. But the only way to truly interpret what's going on is to run it through the truth of God's Word. Say, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't match up with what the Bible says. And yes, the world we live in would cause you to believe all kinds of things about all kinds of people. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. I don't know, but I know one thing for sure, that this Word is true, that God is true, that Jesus is the truth and life is ultimately found in Jesus. When we get to chapter 15, we'll get to that wonderful passage of Scripture where Jesus says this, I am the vine, and ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do, what's he say? Nothing.
nothing. Where does our life come from? The vine. Comes from Jesus. Comes from abiding in Him, finding our strength, finding the answers, finding the direction, finding our hope, finding our purpose in Jesus Christ. And how do you know if someone is really abiding in the vine? What happens? They bear fruit. If you look at your life and there's no spiritual fruit, if there's no spiritual reproduction happening, I think we all ought to be able to point to somebody else in our life and say, that's somebody that God has allowed me to reproduce myself spiritually in. That's somebody I brought to Christ. That's somebody that I'm teaching and training and encouraging and helping them to grow, to learn what I've learned, to follow in obedience and walk with Christ. But the reality is I think there will be a lot of Christians someday that stand before the Lord and they don't have anything to show with all of their life. And the Lord says, well, what did you do for me? Well, I was a nice person. I, I, I gave money at church. I, I, I sang. I, I cleaned. Those are all good things. But God didn't call you primarily to clean or sing or teach. He called you and He called me to go and make disciples. Are you making disciples of Jesus Christ? Jesus says He's the way, the truth, and the life. See, there's only one way to God. Imagine this morning with me, if you had an incurable illness, you had this sickness that was it was terminal. You were going to die from it. And in a sense, we all do, don't we? It's called life. And the doctors looked you over, whatever this sickness was, and they said, all right, we can help you, but there's only one way. You've got to take this medicine. You've got to be on this particular protocol. You've got to eat these particular things. You've got to... Whatever it is. What would we do? Give it to me. Whatever it is. I want it. I'm going to do it. Because I want life. This is what Jesus is saying to us. There's only one way. There's only one truth. There's only one life. And that's in Jesus Christ. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. So, there's another question that happens here. We had the question of Thomas. And then if you look down in verse 8, there's another man that speaks up by the name of Philip. Let's read verse 7, though, as Jesus is speaking. He says, If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also, and from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. Now, it's interesting here as we read these next few verses down through verse 11. There are some 165 references by John in his various books. He wrote John. 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. In those five books, there are about 165 references to God as Father. 
And in the Gospel of John here that we're studying together, there are about a hundred references to God as our Father. And ten of those are in these next five verses. I want you to notice that as we read through these verses together. Beginning in verse number seven, all right? Maybe you want to underline these in your Bible. Maybe you want to circle. Maybe you just want to count them. But notice them. If you had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. Philip said unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else ye believe me for the very works' sake. I think I counted ten. Were there ten there? Did I get it right? Nine? Okay. Thank you. I counted wrong. There's a lot. As I was going into this, I, I had counted in when I was studying, but I counted wrong, wrote it wrong. Aren't you glad I'm not the truth? <laughs> Jesus is the truth. Suffice it to say, though, he's talking a lot about the Father here, isn't he? Why is this important? Philip says, he asks this question back in verse 8, Lord, show us the Father. How can we get to the Father? See, we understand, I think, or you should understand, that Jesus forgives sin. There's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. But how do we get to the Father? You say, well, why does that matter? Well, it mattered to Jesus. Jesus keeps saying over and over, if you find me, you'll find the Father. If you follow me, we'll find the Father. If you seek after me, we'll find the Father. I have shown you the Father. Why do we need a father? Well, a father is a very important part of a family. Now, Jesus, or God, specifically in Scripture, God is not genetically a man or a woman, but every time He reveals Himself to us in Scripture, He's revealed as a father in a masculine sense. This doesn't mean that he doesn't love women or any of those things, but he reveals himself to us as a father. Why? Why? Well, he reveals himself to us as a father because a father has a very important role in a family. We live in a world today that doesn't understand fatherhood very well. People think of fathers as just somebody that comes along and sort of gets the process started and then they're out of the picture. That's the way a lot of fathers are and that's not true fatherhood. Men get to go do whatever they want, live how they want, and it doesn't matter. They can be absent fathers, Right? Maybe some of you, when you think about your own fathers, you would say, my father wasn't a good example. And I think sometimes when we read Scripture, we can have a tendency to take our view of our earthly father and project that 
onto our view of our heavenly Father, right? And we understand fatherhood because of what our experience has been. And yet, our experience is marred by sin. God the Father is a perfect Father. He is a good Father that loves His children, cares for His children, and provides for His children. When I was a youth pastor, we had, there were four different teenagers in our youth group that all had the same mom, but they had different dads. When you grow up like that, it gives you a twisted view of what a father is supposed to be. One of the young ladies in our youth group, when she graduated from high school, I said, well, is your dad going to come to the graduation? She said, my dad lives in, in the same town I do town of 15,000 people. She said, I haven't seen him one time since I was born. You say, how's that possible? We live in a world that many people don't understand what fatherhood really is, do they? And I hear people talk about it. Well, yeah, I have the, these kids. Well, where are they? And Dad's nowhere to be found. Some people grow up and they have a very harsh Father, a harsh dad, somebody who was always very angry and rude with them, but didn't seem to show much love. And that's how some people view God, isn't it? That He's just this big old angry guy up in heaven somewhere just waiting to beat you over the head the first time you do wrong. Am I right? Yeah. Some people have grown up in a home with an unprotective dad in the sense of maybe they had a dad that loved them and doted on them and gave them everything they wanted but didn't protect them from the evils of this world and allowed them to get into all kinds of trouble. Sometimes that's how people view God, isn't it? He's just this permissive God. That he, hey, you just live however you want. God loves you. It doesn't matter to Him. Holiness... That's just something He is. He doesn't expect that out of you. Is that what the Bible teaches? No, it's not. But that's how maybe some of you view God. And maybe that's partially due to the fact that that's what your earthly father was like. How about the tolerable dad? He was mostly good. He was around. Take him or leave him, right? That's how some people view God. Well, I know he exists, he's out there, but it doesn't really have much effect on me one way or another. Our view of a father affects our view of God. Maybe you had a terrific dad, someone who loved you, forgave you, taught you, challenged you, disciplined you, forgave you. They weren't perfect, but they were terrific. What kind of dad did you have? Isn't it interesting? Now, you may believe one thing like this, and this may not have been the way your dad is, but I think it's interesting, the parallels between earthly fathers and our heavenly father. Think of it. What does the atheist say about a father, their heavenly father? They say, I have no father. And we're raising a lot of children in our culture today that are atheists. I don't have an earthly father, and I sure don't have a heavenly father. Nobody really cares. Mom's there, sure. Father, no. 
What's the agnostic say? Well, I may have a dad, but he's not involved with me and I'm not involved with him. I don't really care, neither does he. That's the agnostic towards God. Yeah, he might exist out there somewhere, but it doesn't really matter for me. Or the deist. You say, what's a deist? Well, deism has been around for many, 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 many years. It's basically the belief that God exists, that He set it all in motion. Some people compare it to the watchmaker, the clockmaker. He, he put this whole world together and then He kind of set it in motion and say, all right, you function, I'm just going to be over here. And this is an interesting study. Recently, a sociologist did a study of spiritual beliefs in young people today. And he said the primary view that he found was deism. That people believe that, yeah, God might exist, but I can go at it my own way, do my own thing. It doesn't really matter. Jesus forgives, doesn't he? But it's the Father that heals us. It's Jesus that brings us to the Father, that intercedes on our behalf, that forgives us of our sin, but it's being in that close relationship with our Heavenly Father that then gives us purpose and direction in life. People today, maybe some of you, might have a fear of marriage and of family. Why? Because you look at your own dad and you said, I don't want to repeat what he did. A lot of young people today, we're going to live together, we're not going to get married because marriage doesn't work. Didn't work for my parents, it's not going to work for us. So it'd be easier just to not get married in the first place than to get married and have to break it all up. That's a wrong view of marriage, which ultimately comes from a wrong view of God. What's God's view of marriage? Well, first of all, He created it. But secondly... God teaches us in His Word in the book of Ephesians that marriage, a husband and a wife, one man, one woman for life, it's a picture of Jesus Christ and the church. This relationship, is it a perfect relationship? No, why? Because we as the church are not perfect. All right. Jesus Christ is. Is there going to be conflict? Yes. Is there going to be struggle? Yes. But Jesus Christ gives His life for the church. And it's His goal that He would sanctify it. That's to purify it and to clean it up and present it to Himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Our view of marriage is dependent upon our view of our Heavenly Father. Uh, immaturity. Oh, we live in a world where people are very immature. Think about it. For some of you that maybe in your 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, I don't think we have anybody in their 80s, but just in case. 90s, 100s, no. When you were growing up, did you have a pretty good idea of when somebody became an adult? Like things they were doing that made them an adult. They had a job, they were providing for themselves. Maybe they were married, whatever it was. But it was pretty clear who the adults were and who the kids were, right? And, and it happened for a lot of people kind of around the same time. 
We live in a culture today that most people can't figure out when they're supposed to become an adult. Right? I mean, it's kind of sad. Funny, but not really. We live in an immature world. Why? Because we have a wrong view of our Father, of what God expects from us. Mothers tend to baby their children. Fathers don't generally do that. Little Johnny might come home. Mom serves his lunch and he says, but mom, I don't like the crust on my sandwich. Can you cut it off for me, please? And dad looks over and says, he's 32. Come on, he can handle it, right? <laughs> when, when are we going to... Immaturity. I'm speaking to the men here. Young boys are growing up and they don't know what it means to be a man and don't know how to become a man because his earthly dads, many earthly dads are not doing a good job of being a picture of their heavenly father. Rebellion towards authority. Oh, we live in a day of rebellion, don't we? Yell at anybody that's in authority. They don't know you. You can say what you want. Why do people rebel? Because they don't know who their Heavenly Father is. And they don't have a good relationship with their Heavenly Father. See, when I have a good relationship with my Heavenly Father, my heart doesn't need to be troubled. Because I have a Father who's preparing a place for me. But think about that on Monday when you're at work, kids, when you're at school, and the other kids are fighting and angry and frustrated and mad about their authority. Why are they rebelling? Because they're not in submission to their heavenly Father. So they're not going to be in submission to their earthly authority either. Philip is asking, he's saying, show us the Father. And Jesus says, have I been, I'm in verse 9, so long with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. What did Jesus do with his heavenly Father? He submitted to his will, didn't he? He obeyed his heavenly Father. He did what God told him to do, even though that meant going to the death of the cross. I love what Philippians 2 says, beginning in verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself, listen, of no reputation. And he took upon him the form of a servant, and he was made in the likeness of man. Notice I'm going down with my hand. And being found fashioned as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Is that rebellion or is that submission? Submission. And then the verse continues on, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should declare That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, here it is, the Father. See, when the Son is submissive, it brings glory to the Father. When you are submissive, when you are obedient, when you are trusting, 
in what God says. It brings glory to the Father. And it helps to point other people to the Father and give them a right relationship to the Father. What happens if you have a loving family, children, mom, dad, they're together, they're having a good time, they look happy most of the time, the kids seem to be growing and learning and and hopefully behaving at some point. What do other people say about that? I'm, I'm thankful that at least some of the time, we don't have a perfect family by any stretch, but some of the time when we're out and about, people come up to us and say, wow, what a great family you have. We, we love seeing those, your children there. Wow, you prayed together for your meal. Wow, your kids actually obey. How do you do it? Some people are just waiting for their kid to be able to get to school and get to a certain age or get them to the doctor so they can get diagnosed and get them on medicine to calm them down because they don't know what to do with them. And we laugh, but folks, there are people struggling with that all the time. Why? Because children aren't growing up in a home with a mom and a dad that love them and love God and teach them and do what's right. And so we have boys and girls and teenagers and young adults and millennials growing up and they don't know what being an adult is and they don't understand what being a dad is because they've never been taught. Jesus is the one that reveals the Father to us. But if we're not going to obey Him, if we're going to reject Him, if we just think, well, He doesn't really care, He's not really a part, I can believe whatever truth I want to believe, I can live whatever life I want to live, we're not going to find the Father, are we? Because how do we find the Father? It's through Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. We also live in a world today where people are very selfish. Kids are selfish because they're born selfish. They're born sinners. But often dads contribute to their selfishness because dads, hurts to say it, but we're selfish. We teach our children that we're the center of the home. We're not. God should be. Or maybe sometimes parents teach their children that the children are the center of the home. Just give them whatever they want. Hey, If you'll sit still, I'll buy you this toy. Just be quiet. Why? Because whatever that child wants is the most important thing. We ought to take care of our children. I love them. It's fine to buy them gifts and do those things. But our children should not be the center of our home. God is. Truth is. We live in a world that loves our dead mentors. We, we love to follow after people that aren't alive to be able to tell us what's right. This happens a lot with preachers. They love to quote guys that are no longer living, which is okay to some point, but it's so helpful to have somebody else in our life that's like a spiritual father to us, right? That can come along and say, let me help you. You're wrong. You pulled that out of context. Having people in our life that speak truth to us, that's, that's what a heavenly father does to us. That's what an earthly father should do to us. That's what we ought to be doing for one another, right? If we're going to grow to follow Christ and, and, and have a great relationship with our heavenly father, we should be admonishing one another, speaking truth to one another, encouraging one another, challenging one another, confronting one another. Of course, as Ephesians says, speaking the truth in love. But speak the truth. 
I'm thankful for some older people in my life that speak the truth to me. And they're nice about it. Sometimes they just look at me funny. But we need people like that, don't we? We don't need a bunch of people running around. Nobody can tell me anything. We need somebody that speaks truth to us. I'm hurrying now. Some people look at God as this motherly figure that is there to just love and nurture. Now, that's all part of who God is, but He's also there to discipline us, correct us, and to lead us into truth. And what are some results of this? Well, I think one result is in many churches in our society, we see these mono-generational churches. In other words, the whole church is within about 10 to 20 years of each other in age. We got old churches and we got young churches. I'm thankful that's not what God has put together here, aren't you? Because biblically, what does the Bible say in books like Titus and Timothy? What are the older supposed to be doing? Teaching the younger. And younger ought to be submitting from and learning from, or submitting to and learning from the older. But instead, we live in a generation now where even in Christian circles, some of the young people have thrown off the older generation, say, we don't care how you did it. It was wrong. We're going to do it our new way because that's how we're going to reach people. Folks, I understand the practical arguments about all those things. But practicality should never trump theology. Doing what seems to make sense shouldn't be what we do if it's contrary to what God's Word says. Folks, I believe we can live in a church that has all different generations of people represented, and we can all love one another and get along great and learn from another, one another, help one another. Think about it. Isn't it a blessing? We live in a church where if an elderly person has a struggle and they need something physical, we got younger people that can come along and fix bathroom doors and do things like that, right? Ruth and I are laughing because we had a bathroom door issue a while back. But it's all working now, I think. She's here. She's not locked in her bathroom anymore. <laughs> but you need some young people around to do that. But you know what I'm thankful for, too? A few weeks ago, on a Saturday, or no, it wasn't Saturday, it was a weekday, there were some young people up here working and painting a time machine for VBS. And Ruth and Linda stopped by with some pizza and fed us lunch. It's nice to have some older people that think about that stuff too. Because <laughs> young people are like, ah, we'll just have a good time. We'll figure it out. And we just go hungry. She goes, no, here's some lunch. Here's some pizza. She took care of us. That's what happens, right? In a church where people love each other and there's older ones and younger ones or la older ladies who can come along, some of our new moms, and say, let me help you with that, baby. Let me give you some insight into what I did Yes, the diapers might have been cloth back then, and now they're disposable now. And maybe that's a good change, but no pun intended. But, uh, <laughs> but we're going to teach you and help you with that baby. We, need, we have some older men who will come along, some of the younger men, and say, men, let me help you, teach you how to have a budget and love your wife and take care of your family and save up and fix this or do that. So thankful for that. One of the most special things a few years ago when I was back in Indiana, 
I got this grand idea to remodel the youth room because it was a pit, for lack of a better term, it was just really run down and awful, and we needed some new lights in there. There was a man who came in, in his late 70s. He'd been an electrician his whole life. His hands were all gnarled up with, with arthritis, but he'd sit there on a chair and he'd say, now, Will, you need to do that. Make sure those wires together. Don't kill yourself over there. <laughs> and I hung all those lights in that room. But I couldn't have done it without Brother Pugh's help. See, when you're in a father relationship, or a right relationship with your father, it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? You could go on and on talking about stories about why it's good. And some of you may be sitting there going, that sounds good, but I've never experienced that. How do I find the Father? It's through Jesus. Jesus will show you the Father. And if you are needing help with that, and we all do, that's what we want to do in our church. That's why people need to be studying the Bible together. One-on-one, two-with-two, three-with-three, not just Sunday morning in church, but throughout the week. Why? So we can have a right relationship with our Heavenly Father. My heart's full this morning, and I feel like I have a lot that I've tried to say and a lot more that I'd like to say. But in just a few minutes to close us this morning, I want us to think of what we're going to do next. We're going to observe the Lord's table, Lord's Supper. This is the time we've sung to worship God. We've listened to God's Word, and I hope that you'll respond in your heart and respond in your life to obey God. But then we're going to continue to worship God even as we observe the Lord's table. Remember what Jesus did. I quoted from Philippians 2 for you about Jesus dying. That's what we're remembering this morning. And remember that it's Jesus that points us to the Father. It was the Heavenly Father Himself for God who so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you know my Father? My Heavenly Father. If you don't, I'd love to help you know what it's like to have a relationship with Him. There's nothing better in all the world. And you may have a mixed up view of it because of how your earthly father was. I'm sorry, I can't fix all those things. But God can give you an eternal relationship with Himself that you can truly say, my heart is not troubled anymore because I'm in a right relationship with my Father. I hope that's you this morning. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me as we pray? Here's what I want to do. Normally at the end of the service, we have a time of invitation, which is just a time for you to pray or to come and speak with me or somebody else that can help you with something that you've heard in the message. I think response is always important, but I hope you understand. I think you probably do that this is just a brief moment in time. And so if God's speaking to you and you need help, come get it even after this time is over, this afternoon, tonight, tomorrow, this week, whatever. We want to help you to have a right relationship with God. But as we prepare for this time right now of the Lord's table, I want you to take some time.
The piano will play in just a moment after I pray. But take some time to ask God to prepare your heart for this time. To remind yourself in your own mind of what Jesus did for you on the cross. If you have sin in your heart this morning, something that's blocking your relationship with the Heavenly Father, would you confess it to Him? We serve a God who forgives. And He heals. But we've got to ask Him. He wants to hear from us. So would you take some time to do that? Father, we thank You for this time, this word of truth. Thank you that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, if there's somebody here today that I think all of us in one way or another needs to grow in our relationship with our Heavenly Father, pray that these truths have reminded us and encouraged us and would help us as we live out our day-to-day life. Lord, I pray as we take some time to just confess our sin and Make sure our hearts are right with you before we partake of the Lord's Supper that this would be a time that would honor you. In Jesus' name I pray.